Alright, we're back to podcast, and I hope everyone has had a good week. The Lord has blessed you in so many ways. Um, I've, uh, before we get started, just uh, some few things I want to say is uh, please pray for me and my family. Um, I'll be away. I'm leaving on Saturday morning, probably somewhere around 4 a.m., and we should reach our destination in Florida around 4 p.m. Uh, you know, it shows 10 hours, but I like to stop. I have to go to the bathroom. I like to eat. So we'll we'll make plenty of stops, uh, and I don't speed typically. So uh, we'll, we'll be there probably about 4 p.m. So do pray for us. Um, as, as I'm driving again, I shared it the other day, a couple times. I don't, I don't drive well at night. Um, I just, I fall asleep. I get sleepy. And so the, all the driving will be during the day and, um, I will be gone Sunday. This is the first time ever. And, uh, I, I'll be honest. I, you know, everyone does our whole church takes a vacation, um, and I've never done it really in the ministry. I have, um, I mean, I take vacations, but typically not on Sundays. And I just, um, th- this one in particular is a long drive, more driving time. Usually I'll go down to, you know, Curie Beach right after church on Sunday. Uh, it's just a few hours and I, I can be there still that day without any issues. But this is a little bit longer of a drive to and from and and you know both ways so there's basically 24 hours of driving uh there and back and so um i really needed that day but um as i've gotten older i feel like it's maybe maybe important i i you know i mean i preached right after uh i had gallbladder surgery and um on a on a month i'm gonna say a monday and I, I was in the pulpit Wednesday night, and I was a younger man then, of course. But over the years, I've learned it's okay to take a take a break, take a Sunday or two occasionally. Um, so I'll be away this Sunday, and then uh, I'll be back next Sunday. And uh, let's just pray. Pray that God send visitors. I've had some young men uh, that I've been speaking with, and uh, they've promised to come and pray that God would uh, send us some visitors to minister to and to preach to. And uh, do pray for Brother Farron. Brother Farron will be preaching on Sunday. And uh, he, I kid around at him. You know, it's, he's, had a, he's had a year to prepare, so he uh, he's ought to be ready. But uh, y'all do pray for him. I ask that God help him and uh, guide him. And then I will be back next Sunday, but I will have podcast every. We won't miss a podcast. So, um, in fact, I'm, I'm going into something new. I spoke about it a little bit uh, Sunday. I wasn't sure how we were going to go about it, whether it be Sunday morning services. And I really felt like the Lord wanted uh, to go ahead and deal with some of this. But um, the beautiful thing about the Bible and studying it is is it typically spurns another study and um, spurns more in-depth study in another direction. And that, that's what happened in this situation was 
was I studied the scriptures um, and I was studying for last week's, last Sunday morning's message. And as I was, I really had a, a burden to preach and or to teach, teach and preach from uh, the life of Hezekiah. I didn't really necessarily preach on or teach on Hezekiah Sunday morning, but um, I did make reference to him. But uh, I feel like it's a great message for our times. As I do, I want to begin with a couple of other verses. I want to go to Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14. And this is, now again, the context would have been Israel in this day, but in these verses that I'm going to read about, the Bible doesn't distinguish on Israel. So understand that. When I speak of dispensationalism and and the times in which we're referring to and how God dealt with men or mankind during these times, if if God is speaking specifically to Israel, we can make a loose application, but we can never make ourselves Israel. We can't. However, in this setting, in these verses... Although the context immediately would have been Israel, God doesn't specify to Israel only. Therefore, we can actually put ourselves right in this place. And before I get into this, I want to say something. Through the years, some patriotic preaching has really just been a turnoff, especially, especially when folks go on about candidates and or politicians and basically basically hailing them as little gods or um, promoting a candidate, promoting a particular uh, politician or a particular voted individual. Um, that's 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 wrong. That's that's not Bible. And I, I will never stand for it. I, I don't like it. It's unbiblical. Um, I remember, I, I know when preachers do it, I've always found it fascinating. A preacher would set, he would set a certain standard in his pulpit for a, for a preacher. You know, whatever the standard is on the man's life. And yet, before he would let let uh, that preacher come into his pulpit, or any preacher, and yet get up in that same pulpit and just espouse a political candidate or a political representative who has filthy morals, morals in the sewer, language in the sewer, uh, filthy lifestyle, and yet, because he agrees with his policies... He, he feels he's vindicated and it's okay to name him and, and promote him in the pulpit. That That's wrong. That's dead wrong. And so when you hear me speak of political preaching, that's what I'm referring to. Don't. You don't promote. Okay, you're not. It, I, you know, I know that uh, men of God have... Um, have run for office and to me it's a step down 
I'm not necessarily against it in terms of the fact that uh, we do need strong leadership, strong Christian representatives um, in these seats and in these positions, uh, men with morals and dignity and character, women with morals and dignity and character. But the fact remains um, it's just really off-putting and against the Word of God to continually go on positive or negative uh, about political people. Now, having said that, having said that, there is absolutely nothing wrong with teaching from the Bible how a nation should be ran, how a nation should be conducted. And uh, I started this on Sunday morning, and I didn't name a a candidate necessarily. I might have talked about a particular administration and their decisions. But to, to say one's favored over another, let's teach the Bible. Let's teach what the Word of God says. See where the individual candidate lines up, and you vote your conscience and vote the Word of God. How about that? That's, that's very simple. So, that being the case, we're going to look, first of all, in Proverbs 14 and 34. Righteousness, righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Verse 35, the king's favor is toward a wise servant, but his wrath is against him that causeth shame. Righteousness, righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And that's as plain as the nose on your face. Completely plain. I could take that verse right there, and that would lead me and direct me in how I ought to vote, how I ought to believe concerning a nation. Okay? You say, but so-and-so's not, neither, neither one is righteous. I'm not talking about the person. We're talking about the, the, the standard for what the agenda would be. Is it a righteous standard in accordance to the scriptures, or is it a non-righteous standard? Is it a righteous standard that's going to be pushed and promoted and talked about and passed and, and, and moved forward? Or not? Is it is it in alignment with the scriptures? Okay. Then we go to one more place. Psalm thirty three and twelve. Psalm thirty three and twelve. Another good verse here. Psalm thirty three and twelve. Psalm thirty three and twelve. And I'm gonna make one more comment before I get into this. Psalm thirty three and twelve. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. Now, got to be careful here. And the reason is, is the people chosen for whom his, for his inheritance was and is Israel. But the first part of that, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Okay? Now, Let's let's talk about this as I get into it. I want you to go to Second Kings chapter eighteen. Second Kings in chapter number eighteen. 
righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Biblical righteousness. Now here is the paradox. Here is the quandary that we have before us. There is a belief that is promoted and permeated through society today and it is that men, women, people, mankind is basically good. Okay? The problem is that is in direct contradiction to the scriptures. The Bible teaches, in fact, the exact opposite, that we have an Adamic nature that we inherit from Adam. So man is, mankind is not, quote-unquote, basically good until we get saved by the grace of God. And then, after we're saved, there's still no good thing that dwells in us. Paul said it himself. That is in me. That is to say, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. So if Paul could honestly say, in his, in his flesh was no good thing, then in our flesh is no good thing. Okay? So the church's job, talking about the church's job now, is to win people to Jesus Christ. And when you win people to Jesus Christ, guess what? You can teach them the Bible and they have the Holy Spirit of God to guide them, lead them, and direct them to that righteousness that exalteth a nation. But to argue with people that do not believe God, they deny God, they hate God, they hate the Bible, and to push your, your political agenda upon those people does nothing but turn them against you, Christianity, and your agenda as well. Why? Because they don't have the Holy Spirit of God to teach them in the first place. So don't you think you're going to straighten them out? So where the church needs to keep its focus is on the lost, getting people to Jesus Christ, to promoting the gospel, and to teaching truth. Okay? Now, we must understand this. Beyond the walls of the church, beyond the walls of the meeting house, is your field. That's where the lost is. That's where Jesus should be taught and preached. And, and, and he should be in the church as well. But then when we come in the walls of the meeting house, at that point we can teach Christians what the Bible says, what the Holy Spirit teaches from the Word of God, and then from there, you begin to gain it and grow it, and you can believe it. And then from there, you go out, win men and women, boys and girls to Jesus. And when you win men and women, boys and girls to Jesus, you can teach them truth. Okay? Now, having said all that, I'm, I'm cut into a lot of time already, but we're going to be 
two to three parts in this. I want you to go to 2 Kings chapter number 18. 2 Kings chapter number 18. It's been a long time. A long time. In fact, this is new. This is fresh. I've never taught through Hezekiah's life. I've preached many messages about Hezekiah, but never necessarily just taught through his life, which is fascinating given the fact that it was a message on Hezekiah that God used to call me into the ministry. David Harrison was preaching up at Temple Baptist Church, and I told this Sunday morning I'd been dealing with it. I've been dealing with it for five years, and I've done everything I could. Man, I taught Sunday school. I had the youth. I, You name it, I've done it. Nothing shook that burden of preaching. And finally... God smoked my heart, broke me down. I was already in Bible college, if I remember right. And I went to the altar. I gave my life, not to God in salvation, but give my life to God to, to, to surrender and preach His Word every time He would open the door. And from there, I would prepare. So my job was to prepare and preach I let God do the opening and the calling. And that's what I've done for 20-some uh, years now, and I'm, I'm thankful I did. Now, let's go to Hezekiah, 2 Kings 18, verse number 1. 2 Kings 18 and verse number 1. Now, it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Eli, king of Israel, and Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Look at this. Twenty and five years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. So twenty-five years. Remember I told you I was twenty-five when God called me. Got saved when I was twenty. Dealt with it, wrestled with it for five years. Five years later, I was 25. God used a message on Hezekiah to call me to preach. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. So the first thing said about Hezekiah is that he done that which was right in the sight of the Lord, as David his father did. Now, watch this. That, that's that's how he's known. And you'll see that. You'll see that as these kings are mentioned. Josiah, different ones. We may even do a study of the kings uh, from here. But that, the Bible says that Josiah did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according that David had, uh, to all that David his father did. So he was, he was right there with David, following God like David, doing the will of God, doing what was right just like David did. Now, here's how he did this. He removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Neshitan. So he removed the high places. I want you, if you would, to just take your Bible marker, and I want you to put it right there in Second Kings. Uh, 18, and I want you to go back to 2 Chronicles 29 for me. 2 Chronicles 29. 
Second Chronicles chapter number 29. That's just a little bit better of a count of what he does. So let's let's go there. Second Chronicles 29. Hezekiah began to reign when he was, I don't want to say better, let's say fuller. There's a fuller account. Hezekiah began to reign when he was five and twenty years old. He reigned nine and twenty years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, watch this, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. So the first thing that Hezekiah does is he had opened the house of God. For you see, what had went on up until this time is is the temple was closed. There was no temple worship services going on. Israel had given over to idolatry in high places. And so these high places would be elevated steps that people would take and they would sacrifice to these false gods. And so Hezekiah becomes king in the land of Judah. And when Hezekiah becomes king in the land of Judah, his first step is to do that which is right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. At that point, friend, the Bible details for us what that rightness in the sight of the Lord is. Number one, he opened up the doors of the house of God. He opened the house of God again. He restored worship. Now remember, hey, I've been riding this thing. I've been going on about this thing for a long time. About the dangers in shutting the, the doors of the house of God. Or in other words, preventing people from worship. Stopping them from collective worship. Yes, you can personally worship. No one can ever stop that. And as a matter of fact, you should personally worship more than anything. You should have personal worship. But, but, collective worship is biblical. Now, the Bible never really tells us how often necessarily. It does say upon the first day of the week, so it should be at least as a weekly basis. But collective worship should happen. And notice what it says. He opened the doors of the house of the Lord. It's not right to not worship together. The Bible tells us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves. And we should worship together. And so the first step in Hezekiah's revival is he tears down all of the idols and he opens up the doors to the temple again and he makes collective worship possible. Now look, I'm taking one vacation that I've had on a Sunday and I can't even tell, I think for honestly, as long far back as I can remember and I'm processing it myself. But the fact of the matter is people have chosen in our nation today have chosen to not be in churches on Sunday, to not worship, to not meet collectively somewhere. They've made that conscientious decision, probably at an all-time high. Now, I know if anybody's hard on the church, I'm hard on what's went on in the church today. I've always, I've been that way for many years. 
But the fact of the matter is, when people aren't going to church and not attending church, there there is a need for revival there. And the first thing Hezekiah does is he opens the doors to the house of the Lord. He repairs them. He makes it possible for people to come. And he brought in the priests and the Levites, and he gathered them together into the east street. And he said, Hear me, Levites, sanctify now yourselves, and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. So he goes to the men of God. He goes to the priests and the Levites, and he, he deals with them. And he says, Get the, the filth, get the sins out of the holy place. So the first step, remember, righteousness exalteth the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And the first step in revival is repentance of sin, getting sin out of our hearts, out of the holy place, and, and, and out of churches, out of homes, out of our lives, out of our minds getting a cleansing accomplished. That, that's what he says here. So he brings them in and he teaches that. He says, clean up the filthiness out of the holy place. Verse 6, for our fathers have trespassed. And he, he takes responsibility here. And I, I feel strongly that that's the position that God's got me in. And I've really done a lot of praying as of lately. You know, what, what do you want? Where are we at in this, God? And I feel strongly that God desires us. He desires me. He desires our generation to acknowledge the sins of folks that have preceded us. Some 20, some 40 years, especially the past 10 years, acknowledge their failures and not take responsibility for their actions necessarily and their sins but at least acknowledge them and, and, and understand where they went wrong and try to correct that because what has happened to us and I'm not talking about America as a nation I guess I am generally but specifically we're talking about churches the direction that America has went in we can't blame on the politicians. We can't blame it on the representatives. We've got to blame it on the direction that the church has went in. We've got to. And the first step in, in Hezekiah leading the nation back to God is he started with the religion, religious people. He started with the church. He started with those that said they served God. And I'm going to tell you what is represented in 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 your lead, quote unquote leader. I, I don't want to say I don't want to. You know, I hate the term leader. They're not my leader, but our representatives are a direct result of the spiritual state of our nation. In other words, we get what we deserve. You're going to get what you deserve. And the responsibility in this situation is, is, is in the church. And 
I'm telling you, I, and I know I go on about Southern Baptist, and I have for two, and it's not intentional, but at one time, the Southern Baptists were the biggest denomination, the, the, the largest denomination in America. And this goes back to the 50s and 60s with the adoption of the new versions of the Bible. And they began to adopt it. Then they began to go more liberal. And then I remember back when I got saved, I had... I've always had Southern Baptist. I've always had Southern Baptist friends, and I'm, and I don't believe in the staunch crazies of the the independent Baptist movements. I just believe in being a Baptist, just just being a Christian, being a, a person that believes in the Word of God and wants to conduct the church as such. But I'm telling you, the '50s and '60s, as the liberalism started creeping into the largest denomination in America you began to see the decline in the moral, overall morality in America. And then I remember in the 90s, back when I first got saved, they started trying to push for a more uh, stronger biblical, more conservatively biblical agenda. And now we look at that, that those guys that were in leadership at that time, and they were all sweeping everything under the rug of some of these guys that were dirty. So what I'm getting at is the state of our nation can go back to the pulpits of America. We had, Just like Alexis de Tocqueville said, the French statesman, he said America's good because America's great. If America ever ceases to be great, it's because she has ceased to be good. And he said, not till I seen her pulpits a flame of fire with righteousness did I understand the greatness of America. Our constitution in America is designed that a people be morally right before this thing works. Because it is it is independence of conscience. And it's, that's not Democrat and that's not Republican. It is a morally correct people see moral morality has crept into our political life and that's where the dividing line has come where it used to be policy that was always debated it's not anymore it's all about morals and that that, that is because morality overall has been in such sharp decline for so many years and I I'm sorry, we can't blame that on the world. We can't blame that on society. We can't blame that uh, on the political system. It starts in the churches. It starts in the churches. We've got to get back to teaching and preaching the Bible. We've got to. And we've got to have credibility in our teaching and preaching of it. We can't just say, I believe that book, bless God. We can't. We've got to know what it says and be able to rightly divide it because the progressive nature of our society wants to know why. They want to know the answers. They want to know the specifics. And for far too long, Christians didn't even know what their Bible said. They didn't even know what their Bible taught. They didn't even believe some of the... For instance, and I'm going to get into a lot of this when we get into Genesis. 
in, on our on our in-person Bible study starting back on the 27th. But there's two things in there particularly. One of them in Genesis is the creation and counting of itself. Christians began to back off of that because of where science thought it was. Okay? Number The other one was passages over in Genesis 6 about the sons of God and daughters of men. And I'll get into them more specifically, but I've heard it, I've read it in, in paper form and heard it stated that, that God deniers would have a heyday with Christians because they didn't know what, either know what their own Bible said or they didn't fully believe and understand what their Bible said. That's why properly teaching and understanding the scriptures is of such importance. Not just shallowness, not just excitedness, not just impassion, and I preach passionately, but not just impassioned preaching with no point. We've got to rightly divide the word of truth. And we've got to have a group and a generation of Christians that know what the Word of God says. And get off the individual hoppy horses. Get off the individual clicks. And really learn the book. So the first thing that Hezekiah does is he opens up the doors of the house of God. He done that which was right in the sight of the Lord. He goes to the Levites and the priests and he deals with them specifically and he says, you get the house of God in order. Verse 6, full acknowledgement. For our fathers have trespassed and done that which was evil in the sight of the, our Lord our God, have forsaken him, have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. Also they have shut up the doors of the porch, put out the lamps. By the way, you remember me teaching through First Samuel the lamp was never to go out and have not burned incense nor offered burnt offerings in the holy place unto the God of Israel. Wherefore, because of that, the wrath of the Lord was upon Judah and Jerusalem and he hath delivered them to trouble, to astonishment, to hissing, as you see with your eyes. For lo, our fathers have fallen by the sword and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in mine heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, be not now negligent, for the Lord hath chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, that you should minister unto him, and to burn incense. Now I'm going to really key in on verse 11, starting on Sunday night. But notice he addresses the sons, and he says, Be not negligent. Sons, be not negligent. Now, it wasn't the sons that sinned. According to what we've just read, it was the fathers who sinned. But he said, acknowledge it. I'm telling you where they're wrong. And now don't be ne negligent in abiding by the word of God. That, ladies and gentlemen, is our first study on Hezekiah. We will continue. We will continue. Uh, Sunday night and then we'll be back podcast Wednesday night we'll continue through Hezekiah's life and then we will 
be back in pot in a live Bible study on the 27th of July. Pray for me and my family and ask that God give us guidance and direction. This has been Hezekiah Lesson 1. Good night. God bless. I love you all.